hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Fails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Covenant his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is seeking sand. All of the ground is seeking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. You have your Bible this morning. And take it and turn with me to Psalm 102, the Old Testament, Psalm 102. We always like to ask folks to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, so you, we invite you to do that with us here this morning that are here, and the praise team and the sound team. And Psalm 102, I'm going to read the... Well, actually, I'm going to sing the entire psalm. Because the psalms were meant to be sung, and I have no idea what tune they would have sung this psalm in or back in the day. But as we do so, and you seek to follow along, 
I want you to notice how the psalm switches between a minor key and a major key. A tone of moaning and a tone of rejoicing. And so the title of the psalm says a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert out of the wilderness, like an out of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the days my enemies taunt me, those who deride me use my name for a curse. Verse 9. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Verse 16. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so the people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem is praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. Verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe, and they'll all pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let's pray together. Your days have no end.
but our days are uncertain. And so, Father, we come in these uncertain days and uncertain times as finite, weak creatures. And we come to the everlasting God, the unchanging God, our rock, asking that you might stir in us, Lord, a fresh an awareness not only of our own finiteness and frailty, but of your infiniteness. So that we would build our lives upon the rock. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will things ever get back to normal? When they do, what will that normal be? How much will our lives change? We're reminded of this some, though coronavirus or not, though everything's changing around us, there's one constant, only one, and it's God. We serve a God who does not change. This song, as I mentioned, this psalm or this song changes from the minor key to the major key. It begins in verses 1 through 11 with the psalmist crying out about his personal pain and his personal suffering. Then in verses 12 through 17, his mind goes from his own personal pain and plight to the plight of the nation, of the nation of Israel that he's a part of. And he's concerned about the nation of Israel, and he prays for Israel, but he's also confident that God will have mercy upon Israel. And so he's rejoicing in this. He says in verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. That's not name it and claim it. That's not saying, God, you will do this. No, that's, him. that's not him naming and claiming it. That's him remembering it and resting in it. Big difference. God has said, and I'll rest in that. And then so in verses 18 through 22, there's even more praise by the suffering songwriter. He says, let it, let it be recorded for a generation to come that a people yet to be created, the Lord will, will give him praise that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven on high, that he did it. So in faith, he's looking at what God has promised and he's saying, he's going to do it. And it gives him hope. So he goes from the minor key to the major key. Anytime someone speaks, they risk being misunderstood. Anytime a politician speaks, the words are just fodder for social media and for, dare I say, fake news. <laughs> Anytime I stand to preach, I risk being misunderstood or not being clear enough or not having thought through this particular th thought long enough to how it could be misunderstood. And so anytime anybody, any finite person speaks, 
and we're all finite. We risk being misunderstood. Here is God, who is not finite, who is infinite, but God is making a promise that the psalmist here, in beginning with verse 12, is recalling. He said, there's an appointed time. You see that in verse 13? In verse 13, the appointed time has come. God, you appointed a time. God had made a promise to his people that they would not always be in that particular condition. And so the psalmist in his physical condition looks at the Israel's spiritual condition and its physical condition and says, God, you made a promise. You spoke and in doing so, you put your reputation on the line. Because if you do not do this, if you change and you do not fulfill your promise, then you are not God. If God keeps his promise, look look what's going to happen in verse 20 or verse 21. Look why he's doing it, verse 21. That, you see that, verse 21, first word, that they may declare the name of the Lord. Why is God doing this? That they may declare the name of the Lord. God's going to be praised. And in Jerusalem, his praise, look at verse 22, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, but the nations, the Gentiles. When peoples gather together and kingdoms, not just the kingdom of Israel, kingdoms, plural, you see that? To worship the Lord. So all peoples of the earth will glorify God, will worship the Lord. But if he does not keep his word, that will not happen. He will not be glorified. He will not be praised. And the psalmist is recalling that and he's preaching it to himself. He's preaching this immutability of God in his own suffering. There are two things that do not change in this song or this psalm. One is the suffering of the psalmist. In the psalm, the suffering of the psalmist does not change. Verse 23, look at it. You come right back to the minor key. Looking at your Bible, verse 23, here's minor key again. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God. I say, do not take me away in the midst of my days. He's still in the minor key. His suffering has not ended. His suffering in this psalm does not change. But the other thing that does not change is the eternality of God. Look at the end Verse 24, you whose years endure throughout all generations. That doesn't change. His suffering doesn't change. And God, his eternality does not change. Look at verse 12 and just notice the focus of the psalmist. Verse 12, look at it. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You're remembered throughout all generations. You see that? Then look at the end of verse 24 again. You whose whose years endure throughout all generations. You see that? Similar wording. God, I'm finite, but you're infinite. You're eternal. His suffering doesn't change. God doesn't change. And so putting this together, what we see in this psalm is the suffering songwriter has soul-sustaining peace. Suffering doesn't go away. But he has soul-sustaining peace that even leads him to praise God when he reflects upon the character of God. You see that? That's just how simple it is. God is always there. And as we will see, God never changes. If God could change, he would not be God. If he could change for the better, that means he's not the best now. If he could change for the worse then oh, what plight might we be in? 
When we've been there 10,000 years, then you say, okay, I changed my mind. The covenant's not good anymore. Got 10,000 years, you're out of here. Or now it's up to you. But God does not change. Because of this, the Lord's often referred to as the rock in Scripture many times. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says this, There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So as the psalmist looks around, as, as writers of Scripture look around and they see we're not supposed to create anything in the image of God because nothing can adequately reflect the image of God, they will refer to him as a rock because a rock appears to be unchangeable. Unless you're like with my daughter and we were out uh, fishing the other day and she heard something in the distance and I, she asked what it was and I said, oh, I think that's dynamite from a mine perhaps. I'm not, I'm not sure. They're blowing up rocks. So rocks can be changed. It's not a perfect analogy. But looking at creation, the psalmist and other, other uh, biblical writers say he's like a rock. A rock appears unchangeable. So you've seen the Prudential commercials. The Rock of Gibraltar, if you're familiar with the Rock of Gibraltar off the coast of Spain, owned by England. And for centuries, that giant rock has been a fortress for armies. And despite long sieges to overtake the armies that were stationed on that rock, there was nothing that could destroy that rock or its people, the Rock of Gibraltar. So we have the simile solid as the Rock of Gibraltar to express a person or situation that cannot be overcome and does not fail. And so that became the corporate and has the corporate logo of Prudential, financial. So our God is the rock. Second Samuel 22 verse 32 says, For God, who, who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And Isaiah 26 4 said, He is the everlasting rock. So the main thrust in which we're headed this morning is to express and Enjoy what the psalmist expresses in this psalm, and that is that he has a soul-sustaining peace as, as a result of seeing and savoring the immutability of God. So I'm going to give you a de definition of immutability. It simply means unchanging, to be immutable, to mutate, you know, it means to change. To be immutable means to not change. And in relation to God's immutability, that's what happens when you try to be fancy and use big fancy words. Definition of immutability, God is unchanging in his character, being, purposes, and promises. It is a word that you should have in your vocabulary. It's a good word, immutability. God is unchanging in his character, being, purposes, and promises. And so we see that expressed in this psalm. Simply put, what the psalmist sees is this. God will always be the God that he is. God will always be the God that he is. I started to write that in my notes. God will be, always be who he is. I could say uh, of someone, uh, Tim Laswell. Tim's always going to be who he is. He's always going to be Tim Laswell. But that don't mean he's not going to change. He may be a little bit different of Tim Lassman. But God 
will always be the God he is. So when we're talking about this unchanging aspect of God, we're talking about God's very nature, his very essence, his very person is never going to change. Nothing about God will change. A lot of us change over time, right? Our personalities, we need to change. That's why we call sanctification. God doesn't need sanctification. He's eternal as expressed throughout this psalm. And so God will always be the God that he is. Sometimes we use the expression, oh, that so-and-so or that person, that place, that's old as the hills. Well, I can never be said of God. God doesn't age. With age comes change. To say as old as the hills means something as aging, as changing, because it's, as it's getting older. But Notice here in the psalm in verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. God existed before the hills. It would not be appropriate to say God is as old as the hills because God stands outside time. He's eternal. This is an infinite God who does not change. He doesn't get better and he certainly doesn't become worse. So this is what the psalmist sees that gives him hope and sustains him in the midst of his suffering. Just notice the psalmist as he's, perhaps as he's looking up at the sky and he's looking up at the sky and he begins to think about how fixed and permanent the sun and the moon and the stars look that he sees when he looks up. It's the same sky that you looked up at yesterday when the sun was just shining in its brilliance. What a beautiful day we had yesterday, Not did we not? Today it's a little bit more cloudy. There's variation though. There's been a little bit, maybe a little bit of change in the beholding the brilliance of the sun. There'll be shadows. The sun has went down and has risen again. It shines brighter in some places than it does of others. So the psalmist looks up at the heavens, the same heavens that Abraham looked up when God made the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's the same sky your great, 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 great grandfather looked up at and saw. Very same one. It's the same one this psalmist was looking up at over a couple thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago, he was looking at the same sky we do. When he looks up, it appears fixed. It appears permanent. It appears unchanging. In reality, it is not. So he says in verse 25, the last part of it, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They appear permanent, they appear constant and fixed, but they will not last forever. They will change. There will be a new heavens and new earth to accommodate God's promises that he's made for his chosen people, his saved people under a new heavens and new earth. The current heavens and earth bear the curse. The heavens and the work of your hands, they will perish, but you will remain And then he says, in verse 26, look at the end of it, they will all wear out like a garment. It's like 
Sometimes my boys, we bought them, buy them brand new socks and stuff, but they'll be running around the house with these giant holes in the heels of their socks and then the toes sticking out at the end. They're like, boys, we got new socks for you. Don't take them long, especially when you wear your socks outside. It's like clothes wear out. The heavens that appear fixed and appear permanent will wear out. They will go away. They will change, but not so with God. Verse 27 says, these are the work of your hands. Verse 26, the first part of it says, but you will remain and they will all wear out like a garment. But you are the same. That's really where we get to it, is it not? Verse 27, but you are the same. The God who created that which seems fixed and eternal and unchanging is himself alone fixed and eternal and unchanging is what the psalmist recognizes here and what brings him hope. That of all the things I can look at in the world, everything around me, even the sky above looks permanent, is going to change someday. I can't put my hope in anything but God alone. He alone is going to be the same. And this brings him hope. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses and said, I am who I am. I am who I am. I'm not going to be somebody else. I'm not going to be something different. I, I am who I am. He exists in and of himself. He's self-contingent. And nothing will improve him and nothing will make him worse. He's the God who says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, as he promises to his people, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore... You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So they can have hope, God's people in Malachi, the prophet Malachi says, because God doesn't change, they will not be consumed. He will continue to be merciful and compassionate to his people. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we can be assured that God would, in the context of James chapter 1, verse 17, that, that we can never say that God tempts man to do evil. Because there's no change in him. Only good gifts come from God. He always does what is good and right and just. We can never say we are tempted by God. God is always the God that he is. Secondly, it follows then, since our God is not changing his person's his essence or his being, both biblically and logically, God will always do what he says. God will always be who he is. This is just a simple way of saying it. And God will always do what he says. He'll always be who he is. And he'll always do what he says. The Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir, this week vetoed uh, a bill that would take a further step to stopping infanticide in the case of a baby uh, that was attempted to be aborted, but the abortion didn't work. So if the baby continued to live, then the doctors would have to do everything they could to help that baby survive. Well, he vetoed the bill and said, there's already laws out there that'll, that, that protect children. Well, why not go ahead and pass this law too? And I, I read something like that, and if you're like me, I get angry. 
This is righteous indignation that comes upon me. And then later I was listening to someone talk about this partial birth abortion ban. And, and, and so one politician had voted uh, uh, for, the, for the ban, but a couple of our, uh, uh, I won't go into names, I guess, but leaders voted for or voted against a partial birth abortion banned years ago and it was brought up under George Bush's administration where this baby is partially born and they insert an object in the back of its head while it's coming out of the mother's womb and kill it. And they voted to go ahead and let that continue. And why am I talking about these things? Well, I saw that on the news this week about this infanticide bill that he vetoed. But one of the things that we can take solace in for a moment is that the injustice that we see, God will judge it. There will be justice. And we should rest in that and rejoice in that because God never changes. He'll always do what he says. And his word is clear. He will not overlook evil. He will never change in his holy hatred of abortion. His disposition towards abortion is immutable. And God will judge those who are involved in the sin of abortion. But let us also be reminded, God is infinitely offended by the sin of all people. And we are all sinners, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, all sinners will be judged by God. God will always do what he says. God will always be who he is and he will always do what he says. And so we might say to ourselves, yes, there will be justice from God. And yes, we should feel that way. Justice one day in relation to abortion providers and all the other evils and wickedness we see in the world if they do not repent and come to Christ. We should also be reminded that God will always do what he says in relation to our sin as well, which separates us from God. God will not change in how he views sin. A.W. Totzer says, God's attitude towards sinners is now the same as it was when he drove out sinful man from the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were forced to leave, God has not changed in his holy hatred of sin. They ate for a forbidden fruit. And he kicked them out and the whole earth is cursed. And God feels that way about your sin. All the wickedness, all the horror, all the abortion, all the homosexual sin, all your sin, all the suffering, the coronavirus, it's all a display of God's holy hatred and outrage that we have sinned against him. And there's a far worse wrath and judgment coming upon all of our sin. God will not change in how he views sin. He'll always do what he says. That brings us hope. And on the other hand, it's like, oh. if God does not change in his relations, and how he relates to mankind, if he does not change in his relations with us, we will perish. Because he says he will punish sin. He'll not overlook it. He'll not sweep it under the rug. He'll not say, bless your heart and come on in. 
If he does not change in his relations towards us, we will perish. But here's good news. God planned, God decreed an immutable decree before he ever created the world to save a people for himself. God planned to change and have mercy on us. And this is what the psalmist goes to in this psalm. You have Israel that he turns to in verse 12. Israel's condition And it's because of their sin. It's because they rebelled against him. But now he begins to petition God and pray for the nation. Two times he cries out for Israel that God would change how he relates to Israel and have pity. Notice in verse 13. You will arise and have pity. That means mercy on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Verse 14, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Lord, have pity, have mercy upon Israel. And he has confidence that God will do just that, that God will have pity on his people even though they've sinned against him and he will judge sin. He said that he will do it. But he's also made a promise that he will change how he relates to sinful people. And he'll do that as well. So he has confidence that God will have mercy upon Israel because God had appointed a time. Look at verse 13 again. You will, have, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. And what's the basis for God doing this? What's the basis for God giving favor to a sinful, rebellious people? What's the basis for that? Sentimentality? Oh, bless your heart. No. The appointed, see that verse 13, end of it? The appointed time has come. God had appointed this. God had promised this pity and mercy for his covenant people. Do you see that? So we read this verse from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So as Balak asked the prophet Balaam to curse God's people, Balaam wouldn't do it because, and God's reply was through Balaam was like, I can't curse you can't curse them because I've, I, I've made a promise. I will not lie. I'm not a man that I should change my mind. I will bless my people even though they are rebellious. I will keep my promise. What's that mean for us? Well, this is what the suffering, first of all, the suffering songwriter clings to. God looked down from his holy height Look at verse 19. He looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth. God did this. And he's, 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 he's saying this by faith. It's not happened in his time. Future generation, he says in verse 18, will praise the Lord because God will have this pity. He will have this mercy. He will do what he says. God will always do what he says. He will always view sin as outrageous. He will always judge sinners. And he will always keep his promise that he's decreed before the foundation of the world to have a people for himself that he will have mercy on forever. 
And it began with the nation of Israel. Out of all the peoples of the earth, he says, I want Abraham. I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham. And through you, I'm going to show the rest of the world who worship many gods what it's like to have a relationship with one true God. And it's through my relationship with you that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so he says in verse 22, look at verse 22. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. So you see, God's plan is to have mercy not upon just people who have Jewish blood going through their veins, but upon all peoples who would trust in the way that God will have mercy upon his people. This same God, you see, who made a covenant with Old Testament Israel, made a new covenant in which all peoples would be blessed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5 says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So get this. God will always do what he says. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But it says were. <laughs> were. Amen. Circle that in your Bible. Were. What happened? We were, by nature, we were children of wrath. His wrath was upon us. Destined for hell. Were. Were. He changed how he relates to mankind based on his eternal decree, his eternal promise that will never change. And so we seek to answer that question, how? How did such a change in God relate and how God relates to his creatures possible? On what basis can God have mercy upon the rebellious nation of Israel, much less the Gentile nations as well? The rock is our redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is our rock. And he is our redeemer. Turn with me in your Bible. And notice the wording that I'll get to in a moment in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And I want you to see that Jesus is our rock. He is the basis. He is the one through whom the promise made to Israel and to Abraham so that the nations could be blessed and the God who says I'll always judge sin will actually have mercy on those who come through his provision he's that provision Jesus is Hebrews chapter 1 just one moment, I want you to see verse 2 through 3 that he's the subject of the text verse 2 but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world Verse 3 about Jesus, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That means he's unchangeable. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After, here it is, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus went to the cross, shed his blood. He made purification for sins by his sacrifice. The rock is our redeemer. And after he made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down 
because it's finished and it will not change. And in case we're not sure that he's the rock or if he's less than the rock, he's just a chip off the old block. He's not. He is the rock. He's not less. He's immutable. For I want you to see what it says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10. It says of Jesus, and you, Jesus is still the subject here, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. This is Psalm 102, folks. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, he says about Jesus, but you will remain they will all wear like, like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. You are the same and your years will have no end. Jesus, you see, is our rock and he's our redeemer. God appointed a time for Israel to receive God's favor once again in Psalm 102. It mentions that in verse 13. It's the time to favor her. And surely... God would bring them out of whatever particular, if this was written during the exile, then God was going to bring them out of that and restore them at some point. And it speaks to that immediate fulfillment. But ultimately, there's a fulfillment that takes place in, a, in Israel and the Gentiles' redemption from sin through Jesus. The favor that we need is the favor of deliverance from sin, purification of sin. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says this, For he says, In a favorable time, I listen to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. That's a, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 49. And then Paul says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. That time has been ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock, who is our Redeemer. The time has come. He's the rock. He's the Redeemer. And praise God. Who Jesus is and what he has done because he is the rock will never change. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Therefore, the songwriter can sing with confidence in verse 18. Let it be recorded for a generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Some of the descendants of the songwriter here, the psalmist, would sing that to some degree when they went out of captivity from Babylon and so forth, but not in its fullest when they saw the former glory, the temple, the rebuilt temple, not as beautiful as the former temple. But ultimately this points to the church. The generation to come is the church. A people yet to be created that the psalmist pointed to is the church. The church, as Vadi Balcham says, is not plan B. It's plan always. Plan always. It was always God's plan to have a people for himself, to have pity upon a people who had sinned against him through his son Jesus. A pastor's wife in Pennsylvania during World War II, her name was Ruth Jones, she was looking at the casualty list in the newspaper and seeing the slow progress of the Allies in the boot of Italy. And everyone in her community in, in the United States in 1943 were living under a heavy weight of strain. But she opened her Bible 
in 2 Timothy and read about how in the end perilous times would come and she wrote these words that became a very popular hymn in the 40s and 50s. In times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Everything around us is changing, but God does not. Jesus does not in what he has promised. And so, brothers and sisters, for the psalmist and for us, what this means, that God is immutable, is not just something to put in our vocabulary to impress people with. It's something to put into our lives to live for the glory of Jesus. We have assurance during our suffering because God is immutable. As Mark Dever says, nothing that troubles us now will trouble us forever. I said at the beginning of the message there were two things in this psalm that does not change. One was God and the other was this, the suffering of the psalmist. In the psalm, in the psalm, his suffering doesn't change. But it will change because he's part of God's covenant people and he says in verse 28, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their condition will change since I'm part of your people wrapped up in your plan. My condition will change. Their offspring shall be established before you. So their suffering and their loneliness and their worry and their brokenheartedness and their persecution and their coronaviruses will not last forever. There's assurance during suffering because God will not change. God will sustain us in our suffering. The rock, his work is perfect, Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he. God's unchanging like a rock. He's always perfect. He's always just. He's always faithful. He's always righteous. He's always upright. He always is doing the right thing. So when these inevitable times of suffering must cry out with the psalmist, to the ends of the earth, I call to you with my heart. When my heart's faint, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Help me to trust in this God. There's assurance in suffering and there's assurance of salvation. Is there not? Because of his immutability and his unchangingness. Verse 28 again says, The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This will happen. He will keep his promise. This salvation of Israel and the salvation that extends to the Gentiles who put their trust in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It is secure. It will be established. Oh, we sang about it. I was listening to the praise team on the way back to the office practicing this morning. And they were singing. Man, I got excited walking in the foyer on the way back to my office. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 through 18 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
assurance of salvation in this rock. Johnny Hunt says, if you lose your salvation, God loses his holy, sacred character. Ken Hughes says, there's no more possibility of God's promise fallen, failing us. No more assurance of, no more possibility of God's promise failing us than of God falling out of heaven. So this rock of Gibraltar, during World War II, the England put some soldiers on there, about 30,000, and they got a volunteer. My grandpa told me, don't volunteer for nothing when I joined the military. Well, they had some volunteers. And these six volunteers were to go inside one of the many caves in the Rock of Gibraltar. And they were to be sealed up inside that cave in case the Nazis tried to, in case the Nazis overtook the Rock of Gibraltar. These six stayed inside the rock of Gibraltar for two and a half years in case that happened. Two and a half years. And if the Nazis came, they were going to be sealed up inside there until they were liberated or until they died so they could monitor the movement of the Nazis who had occupied the rock. Of course, that never happened. The Nazis never overtook the rock of Gibraltar. But there they waited under cover for two and a half years. They went inside the rocks. They were told, no, there would be no way out. And anyone who died within that chamber, those six men, would have to be embalmed and cemented into the walls. They were to go inside the rock. And what I say to you this morning is in a much greater way, we need to take refuge inside the rock. We need to go in the rock, in the rock, take refuge in the rock and continue to go there. It's an old hymn. I want to sing part of it for you. I've been in a singing mood this week, so I ain't going to apologize, I guess. In seasons of grief to my Lord I'll repair. When my heart is overwhelmed with its sorrows and cares, to the ends of the earth, to my God I will fly. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When Satan the tempter rolls in with the flood to drown my poor soul from its fountain of good, I will cling to the Savior who humbly did die. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, higher than I, higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's what I want to encourage all of us to do every day. Keep cleaving 
to the one who will not change. Go to his word and go to his promises. If you're here this morning, well, maybe you're not here, but if you're listening, you're not a Christian, you need to take refuge in the rock for your salvation. He's your only hope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to go to heaven. There's no way to be forgiven of your sins except through Jesus. We sing the old hymn here at the end, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He's the rock. Jesus is the one that bled and died for you. He will not change. He'll not accept anything less than perfection. God will not view, change how he views about your sin. He will judge you for your sin. And you will most assuredly and deservedly spend eternity separated from God in hell. Nothing you can do to save yourself. You must put your complete trust and hope in the rock, in the Lord Jesus. As the old hymn says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal? No respite. No. Could my tears? Could I shed enough tears? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Put all your faith and all your trust in the Lord Jesus. Call upon him. Admit that you've sinned against him. And be saved. Don't you understand that what's going on right now in our world? Is God graciously, yes, he's sovereign over it. God graciously crying out to you, giving you the opportunity. Behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. The opportunity for favor. Put your place, your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your great and eternal promises that will not change. They're extended out to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. They could be saved. Lord, do this work in the hearts of your people. Encourage those that are faint and weary like the psalmist. Encourage us in the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rejoice together in who our rock is and sing this closing hymn. in thee let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save me wrath and make me pure not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands could my zeal no respite know could my tears forever flow all could never sin atone thou must save and thou alone
nothing in my hands I bring Simply to thy cross I cling Naked come to thee for dress Helpless look to thee for grace Foul I to the fountain fly Wash me, Savior, or I die While I draw this fleeting breath When mine eyes shall close in death When I soar to worlds unknown See thee on my judgment throne Rock of ages left for me Let me hide myself in thee Let's pray. Father, our, our world has changed uh, right before our eyes. God, we have changed. God, we pray for the better. Maybe sometimes not. But God, we know that you never change. Never change. And so God, what you say is good is still good. And, and God, what you say is evil is still evil. And, and what you say brings judgment still brings judgment, but God, what you say brings mercy, still brings mercy. And so thank you for this gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the confidence that you've given us that it will never change. God, that there is one bridge between us and you, and that's Jesus Christ and his sacrifice he made for us. And so God, encourage us with those words that as the world around us changes, as God, we feel changes in us, uh, God, you are our rock. We can always turn to you for rest, for peace, and for confidence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.